It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books! The celebration is on! The Washington Nationals are the world champions! Welcome to Episode 2 of the Curly W Live from the Field Podcast. My name is Kyle Brostowitz, and I'm coming to you from the Curly W Live studios here in Washington, D.C. Our guest on today's podcast is John Shestakovsky, the Vice President of Communications and Education at the Baseball Hall of Fame. He is a former colleague of mine in the baseball PR community uh, and is now doing some great work at the Hall of Fame. But before we get started with that interview, I wanted to remind listeners about the expanded offerings of the Curly W Live podcast. Be sure to check out Curly W Live from the booth with Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler. Uh, They've dropped two episodes so far as of Wednesday, and those episodes have been talking about and looking back at the 2019 wildcard game and the 2019 NLDS. They're going to continue with this uh, series of lookbacks at the 2019 postseason with upcoming episodes on the NLCS and the World Series. So be sure to check those out. Um, Charlie and Dave do some some great lookbacks, some great analysis, tell some great stories on those podcasts. So uh, in addition uh, to From the Field and From the Booth, uh, we'll also be sharing fan stories in our From the Stands series. Uh, with that in mind, we want to let you know that we are asking fans to share audio recordings of their favorite 2019 postseason memories to be featured on the inaugural Curly W Live from the Stands podcast. To submit a memory, visit Curly W Live, which is the official blog of the Nationals at curlyw.mlblogs.com, and look for the post titled Calling All Nats Fans. Submit your postseason memories now. All of the instructions on how to upload your audio files uh, are contained in that post, so check it out. Uh, remember, you can listen to the podcast, including all past episodes, through our blog, which is, like I said, curlyw.mlblogs.com, and through iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and art19.com. To find it, simply search Washington Nationals Podcasts. All the old ones are in there, like we talked about in the first podcast, so feel free to go back in history and uh, listen to some pretty cool episodes. Uh, you can also find the podcasts on other platforms like CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. So let's get to it. Here is the From the Field Episode 2 with John Shestakovsky. Enjoy. All right, welcome, John, to the Curly W Live studios, uh, which for me are here in lovely Washington, D.C. Uh, and for you, uh, where are you joining us from? Well, I'm in the beautiful village of Cooperstown, New York, home of the Baseball Hall of Fame and, uh, you know, an absolutely wonderful place to, to, to be living. Nice. Well, uh, thank you for joining the podcast to uh, talk a little baseball, a little bit about what uh, you do. So appreciate you jumping on. Oh, absolutely uh, uh, thrilled to join you, Kyle. I appreciate the offer to have me on here. Uh, All right. Well, to it. before we get started, really, uh, I just want to make a shout out to baseball fans here and that when all this is over and life kind of gets back to normal, be sure to make a trip up to Cooperstown uh, and, and visit the Hall of Fame. Um, I last went during the summer of 2004. It was a family road trip from Milwaukee. Uh, we bounced around to different baseball games and then um, on the East Coast and then made our way up to Cooperstown. We were gone for about 10 days. It was really cool. So, But that was 2004, and I know I need to get up back up there 
Um, so fans, uh, like I said, if you haven't been there yet, or if you need a refresher like I do, get up there once all this is over with. But that was kind of my, my soapbox, my spiel. Um, so I'll kind of turn the floor over to you a little bit, John, um, and kind of give listeners a little bit of a rundown of your career path. We'll start there. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, the career path, it's a little strange, a lot of luck and, and, um, I don't know how much talent, but, um, very thankful to, to have landed here in Cooperstown to have had a few different opportunities in baseball. Um, you know, I was in college, I think like a lot of people in college, just kind of not struggling, but just, uh, not sure where I would go afterwards. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of a lot of folks probably also remember reading Moneyball and kind of having an epiphany of, hey, I, I would love to work in baseball too. If they can do it, why can't I? Um, you know, I wasn't someone who played ball into college, so um, I was a little behind the eight ball on that end. Uh, but uh, you know, the thought was, hey, maybe I could write write about baseball, be a journalist, um, and maybe I'll just give a shot to working in the game. So the summer before my senior year of college, I ended up applying for, I believe, 26 different internships in baseball. Um, I heard back from one of them, uh, and I ended up getting that gig with a minor league team in um, Lowell, Massachusetts. And as a, a kid growing up in Boston, this being a Red Sox affiliate short season, it was actually a really perfect fit in so many ways. Um, and I tell uh, younger uh, people looking to work in baseball, the minor leagues is such a great place to start because you really get an opportunity to learn a lot more about the industry as a whole. And, and me going in fresh, I didn't know so much about any particular area. I didn't know anything about sports communications, media relations, mm-hmm. player relations. I was going in completely fresh. Um, they put me in the merchandising department because I had some retail experience, but it was an on the job process. And I, I owe a lot to the people um, at the spinners um, back in the early to mid 2000s who were willing to let me kind of learn on the job. Um, and uh, and they kind of brought me back year after year and eventually hired me uh, full time to kind of run the media relations department. And uh, that's where I kind of was lucky enough to eventually um, have my second uh, lucky break. Um, and that was, you know, volunteering for the Boston Red Sox mm-hmm. in 2007. Um, they were moving on to their uh, postseason run towards winning the World Series. And I ended up uh, connecting with John Blake, the great John Blake, oh, who wow. and I know, a legend in uh, baseball PR circles. He was uh, uh, head of uh, the Red Sox PR department and um, you know, we'd gotten to know each other because the minor league team that I was working for had some uh, made some games at Fenway Park. Um, and I ended up volunteering during the whole postseason run uh, to help out with the Red Sox, you know, did some fun things like uh, clips and media guide bios, postseason media guide, all that fun stuff. Ended up uh, with them for, you know, a month, uh, a month and a half going in every single day. Wow. I'm telling you, man, as a Boston kid, you brought me on the duck boats. I, I got to hold the World Series trophy. Wow. It was this this was my pinnacle. I thought I don't I don't need to work in baseball anymore. This was something that is never gonna be um never gonna be improved upon in terms of a special experience. Um and then again, as luck would have it, um there were some folks that left the Red Sox PR department just that off season and uh and John Blake um 
you know, for whatever reason, maybe it was too close to the season to, to reach out to too many people, but he offered me a, a job um, in the Red Sox PR department and kind of ended up spending about 10 years there working from the bottom uh, of the ladder up to the point of, uh, you know, kind of your role um, in, in terms of PR, um, dealing with players and, you know, kind of half the road games and postseason and spring training. And uh, again, talk about a dream job for a kid from Boston um, running through the 2013 World Series uh, championship. Um, and, you know, uh, I, again, never thought I'd ever have the chance at another uh, dream job. And, and here I am in Cooperstown, um, where I've had another tremendous opportunity to learn and grow um, and and see the whole baseball world from another perspective. What was that transition like for you from the Red Sox to, to the Hall of Fame? And what are some of your kind of responsibilities uh, in the role? Yeah, you know, when, uh, when uh, former uh, president of the Hall of Fame, Jeff Idelson, reached out um, to see if, you know, I might be interested in in coming to Cooperstown, I tell you, I'd been here before and coming from Boston, I just wasn't sure about moving to a little village of, of 1800 people, but uh, it really made a ton of sense. It, it's an amazing, it was an amazing move. And, um, you know, seeing things from this perspective, it, it's so much more about the emotion of the game. Um, it's connections to each and every one of us. Um, I, I'll say the transition wasn't entirely uh, easy. And um, I think the biggest difference is what I kind of call pace of play, where, you know, in the baseball PR world, we're talking about deadline after deadline, you know, many deadlines within a day, even to get the game notes out to, you know, prepare for the clubhouse to open the media and then post game. And, and then it all repeats day after day. Um, definitely a, a lot less specialized, um, you know, overseeing two departments now and um, the number of people that we interact with here in, uh, you know, we have a, a great group at, at the office in Cooperstown, but it's just uh, numbers wise so different from what, what I was dealing with, what you deal with now, you know, hundreds of people between players and staff, right. baseball operations, media, it's just, it's a difference in, in that way. Um, and it did take some adjusting, but, um, like I said, it's just a wonderful place to be. Um, now, uh, here I, I'm looking at communications and PR, um, basically, uh, overseeing just how the museum is, in, is dealt with from the public side. Um, and that includes education and all the programming elements um, that we do in the museum and virtually. So there's a lot, a uh, lot going on here in a, a little institution um, tucked away, you know, uh, four hours from New York and Boston. Um, but it's a wonderful place. And uh, the most rewarding part is seeing those personal connections, those emotional connections that people have to baseball when they come to Cooperstown. See that. So um, that's a good transition. We talk about personal connections. We talk about memories. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show uh, was to talk about the postseason and specifically our World Series run and kind of what you do as a member of the Hall of Fame um, and your impact and your role kind of in the, like I said, in the postseason, in the World Series and how that relates to what you guys kind of gather for the Hall of Fame. So, um, you know, as kind of what what are your responsibilities once the postseason starts um, and once the regular season is kind of winding down and once the postseason starts? 
Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a great question. Again, something I, I, I was learning on the fly. I've been here uh, four years now, um, but uh, the process is is pretty intricate. And, you know, my my office is um, kind of the main liaison with the clubs and with MLB mm-hmm. uh, with regards to uh, artifact acquisition. Um what we're always looking for is an artifact that can tell a story. Um, and that story can be a part of uh, the piece or it can be a part of, um, you know, what the piece represents. Um, coming towards, you know, the postseason, we've completed a regular season where we probably acquired, you know, 30 to 40 artifacts that tell the stories of the season. Um, working with people like you and uh, other club contacts throughout MLB, as we get towards the end of the regular season, you know, there's a flurry of wrap up of, you know, hey, this is a season that we, we need to commemorate. We need to be able to remember. Um, so what from the regular season are we collecting that we'll be able to, you know, keep in generations from now, be able to tell an important story of what happened this year. Um, but we're also looking forward to the postseason. And uh, that happens, you know, that's a that's a situation where we're getting ready for every single scenario. Um, every club that could make it to the World Series. And as, as a team clinches, we kind of start to have those conversations with the club contacts individually just to explain, hey, this is what we're going to be doing. This is what we're trying to do and trying to work with the clubs and the best protocol to put in place. So um, as the postseason continues along, there's some magic moments. There's some things you can plan on, yeah. um, maybe some milestone appearances, but some magic moments um, like what we saw with Howie Kendrick uh, and the Grand Slam where things just happen. And it's a pretty quick turnaround where we try and, uh, uh, you know, get in touch with the right people, do a little bit of travel. But then when the World Series comes, it's a whole different, whole different animal. Yeah, I, I came across your picture. Actually, it's a picture of Tim and, and Howie at his locker. Uh, recently. Yes. I hope you guys have the, they're, they're great photos and Tim and how we go back, obviously the angels days. And I hope you have the photos too, but I was scrolling through looking for something specific to Howie in the world series. And I was scrolling and I found the pictures of, of him presenting that bat. And uh, was that, that's yeah. just something that, like you said, it kind of, you know, going into the ninth inning or the 10th inning that night, you didn't know you're going to want that bat. But then a week later, or about, I think it was about, it was during the world series where, where you guys, where he presented it to you guys. And it was a really cool moment. I think for Tim and for Howie. Yeah, Tim, um, Tim obviously uh, is our, our new president at the Baseball Hall of Fame. He worked for 40 years at the Angels and knows Howie really well. Yeah. Um, and it was actually the, the next day or even the night of the Grand Slam that Tim reached out and, and Howie um, actually let him know that, that he was going to hold on to the bat for Tim uh, to bring back to Cooperstown. And we didn't connect with Howie until we got to the World Series. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, gave us the bat and was absolutely thrilled um, that we'd be bringing it back to us and or back to Cooperstown and, and be able to preserve that forever. What an important moment in the game's history um, and, and something really special for us to be able to display. Yeah, that was one of the cooler moments I know I was a part of and it's cool. So um, World Series wise, um, what, what tell us a little bit about the World Series and, and kind of what goes on and I know we had some cool moments in the World Series that I know you you did you captured for the Hall of Fame. So let's let's go there. Yeah, definitely. So you know our goal is twenty five, fifty, a hundred years from now, if someone wants to know the story of this World Series of this championship team, 
what artifacts should we have on hand to be able to tell those stories? So usually that's like, you know, seven to 10 different pieces, uh, most of them from the winning team. Um, and again, we'll work through, uh, you know, the club contacts and also um, MLB authentication, which is led by the great Michael Posner um, that we see at every MLB Jewel event. Uh, he and his staff are incredibly helpful. And um, just like uh, like you guys and, and the Nationals, MLB is very generous in what they share with the Hall of Fame. Um, and so we basically start creating a running list. As games are moving forward, you know, after game one, uh, who are the key players? And then after after game two, kind of continuing that process and honing in on what the major storylines have been. Um, and so by the time we get to a clinching game, a potential clinching game, we kind of have a list of what what we might be looking for. Hey, this guy had a great game one. He, this pitcher's won two games. Um, you know, this important mo- milestone moment was ta- took place. And some of these things we actually have to act on before uh, the completion of the series, like the Juan Soto baseball from uh, game one of the World Series. The 1-0. Swing a fly ball, well hit to left field. Way back goes this one. It's got a chance. It's going, going, and long gone up onto the railroad tracks. Welcome to the World Series, Juan Soto. Which is a neat story in and of itself. But a lot of the pieces end up coming from after the clinch, uh, when um, myself and Tim... Um, end up in the clubhouse. Uh, we'll wait a little bit for some of the champagne to stop flying, but then it, it's reaching out to the players and, right. um, and seeing if they're willing to share, you know, you know, we don't want all hats. We don't want all bats. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, would you share your glove? Would you share your, your bat? Would you share a hat? Um, and, uh, it's all game used artifacts. Um, and, and I gotta say every single guy we talked to in the nationals clubhouse, was thrilled to offer something and, and we're incredibly grateful and appreciative um, that you guys provided that access and, and that all these players were and, and staff and staff were willing to share something with us. Um, so you, you mentioned the Juan Soto ball and I, I thought that was really cool how that all went down. I mean, it was an amazing, I mean, the home run was crazy in and of itself and all of a sudden, you know, the ball's up on the track and stuck. Um, was that something where you were like, Hey, we need that. Or like, that was important maybe based on his age or, or the, just the reality that he hit a ball up there and now it's stuck Did that. Like in that moment where you're like, okay, we need that ball. Let's get, let's go get it. Yeah. That, that was, man, that was a special moment. And kind of like, I, I know, I know Juan's uh, this was kind of Juan's coming out party for a lot of the, a lot of the baseball world. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys knew what he was. And I think a lot of great baseball fans know of his talent, but um, to have a player who wasn't even 21 years old come out, in the first game, I think hit a game tying home run uh, off Garrett Cole, and uh, what a shot that was! Um, you know, the moment was part of it. Uh, to see the fact that we all saw this ball go over the left field wall and and into the train tracks at, at Minute Maid Park, that's kind of a special visual mm-hmm. that that we're all going to remember for a long time. They kept showing it on TV, yeah. but but the history of that moment isn't lost either. Where um, where he was the fourth player only to uh, to hit a home run in a World Series before turning 21 years old. And that's a pretty darn impressive list um, with Miguel Cabrera, Andrew Jones, and uh, the great Mickey Mantle who did it twice. So, you know, that, that piece of history is kind of what um, 
set out those alarm bells. Hey, this is going to be an important piece to document for uh, future World Series history, future Nationals history, um, and, and and a piece that we'd be able to use um, in the museum to tell a number of different stories. So uh, those are the kind of amazing um, artifacts that, that we love to bring back to Cooperstown. So now was it security that went up and got it? Yeah. So um, after the game, again, kind of worked through our friends at MLB Authentication. They organized a, a, a team from the Minute Maid Park facility staff to head up there. They got the ball, uh, confirmed uh, that it was the ball. And the next process really was to give that ball to Juan. Right. And so the ball was delivered to the clubhouse. Um, but it was also made clear that, you know, Cooperstown was hoping to bring it back and, uh a testament to his, um, I don't know, maturity, yes. I would say, uh, that he was, you know, very happy to share that with us. Um, he uh, posed for a photo with the ball the next day, and um, it, it ends up being a really special piece. I think that, you know, Washington fans are going to be coming to Cooperstown and seeing for a long time. I think he was, I remember that moment when you presented it to him in the dugout is before game two, and I think he was speechless, like, which doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Um, but I think that, like, the, the honor that he had and, I don't think I think it was a no-brainer for him once he heard what you guys wanted to do with it. I think, like I said, I think he was shocked and, and a little bit speechless and and so honored to to, to let you guys have the ball and, and make sure it was in safe keeping up up in Cooperstown. Yeah, in, in talking to him, you know, there's a there's a humility, mm-hmm. there's a such a respect for the game, mm-hmm. and um, for someone his age to perform that well in the game and also have uh, have that kind of an attitude. Um, off off the field, it's it's an impressive young individual. You can see uh, where he's headed in the game, and and uh, he's already a special player. So, um, looking forward to seeing him on the field again soon. Yeah. So so what about the um, the rest of the exhibit? I've seen pictures on social media. I know our, our broadcaster Charlie Stoes was up there uh, uh, and put out some cool pictures. So what else did you gather? What are if you have any other cool stories about how you gathered it? We'd love to hear those. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the exhibit itself, it's called Autumn Glory. um, And uh, it's one of, uh, you know, uh, 13 or so um, uh, exhibit spaces up at the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all about uh, the history of the World Series in the postseason. And um, there's a pretty large display that's that's dedicated to each year's uh, World Series champion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this gets recurated every year with the artifacts that we're bringing back. And right now it's just a beautiful display with uh, quite a few artifacts telling the story of of this World Series. Um, To run through uh, just a few of them, uh, you know, we have one of the bats that Anthony Rendon used. Um, We have some spikes that uh, Kurt Suzuki wore those first couple of games um, when he was uh, quite a force on, on both sides of the plate there. Um, we had that Juan Soto ball. Uh, Max Scherzer was uh, kind enough kind enough to donate um, the cap he wore during game seven. Um, uh, Steven Strasburg gave us uh, a jersey uh, that he wore during the series. Um, and uh, Davey Martinez actually gave us uh, uh, the hoodie that he was wearing um, uh, at the end of the postseason as well. So that's just a few different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of those are tied to special performances, special moments. Um, Fernando Rodney was someone that we talked to afterwards too. And he actually donated his glove from the world series wow. as someone, um, you know, who, uh, who appeared on the mound at an age, uh, I think 42 <laughs> years old. Um, 
you know, you don't see a lot of guys that age in the game right now. And just the thought is, historically speaking, he could end up being the oldest, um, you know, pitcher on a World Series mound for quite some time. So that was an important thing. And it kind of shows that there's there's a little more to it than what's happening in the stat line sometimes when there's a storyline that we're looking to capture um, and, and be able to preserve forever. So um, those are some of them. You know, there's probably a couple of those artifacts, a couple more artifacts that we were able to acquire that I think maybe are a kind of extremely special. And um, one of those, uh, we talked about the the bat that Howie Kendrick used mm-hmm. um, uh, to clinch the, the DS, but um, he actually, of course, hit that game seven home run right. um, to, to basically win the World Series. And um, and once again, after after the World Series, we, we walk into the clubhouse um, with Tim Mead and um, man, to see those two guys embrace was really special. <laughs> and uh, and how he knew we were hoping uh, to collect something from that home run. And he pulled out of his backpack the baseball wow. that hit the pole and he gave it to us. And this is such a special piece because not only is it an amazing moment in history, um, you know, sending a, 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 a franchise to its first World Series victory, um, but if you actually look at the ball itself, it has some yellow paint on it where it's scraped off the the foul pole in right field. So this is a, a this is an artifact that represents something so special and actually can tell the story of of what happened and why it's so important. So that those types of pieces are just so incredibly special and meaningful. Um, and, and that's where, again, we're incredibly grateful. The Hall of Fame doesn't buy or sell any artifacts. Everything we get is donated. And that started when we opened our doors in 1939 with the likes of Babe Ruth and Cy Young donating things to the Hall of Fame. And the generosity of players and, and clubs and MLB and, and the fans has just sustained that um, forward. So we're unlike different museums, everything we collect is kept forever. And um, we make that commitment to all the donors. Um, so we, we really appreciate what, what these guys are doing. So all of them in sharing something. And I guess the last, uh, the last artifact that I want to mention that, that we picked up was uh, the, probably the first, uh, what I would call stuffed animal that I've collected. Oh in yes. My travels. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was, uh, believe it or not, a baby shark ended up um, coming back to Cooperstown is now part of the Hall of Fame's collection. Yeah, so uh, one of Para's um, sharks that he had in the clubhouse um, in Washington, he ended up uh, heading back to, to Washington after, after the series clinched and um, ended up uh, getting that to us. Um, and uh, it's now on display as part of the Nationals World Series exhibit. And it it is very appropriate, yes, you is. know, having gone and been a part of um, those games in Washington, uh, probably the memory I'm going to take away more than anything else is I went to visit um, a couple of friends who were uh, in the stands mm-hmm. in the upper deck and I, I walked down there. It just happens to be when Parr is coming to the plate and um, to see everyone doing the baby shark at the same time. <laughs> and uh, to hear everyone saying it and, and be in the middle of that uh, that feeling, it, it's just a communal love of right. uh, of this team and of the players, um, and that you know everyone's in it together. Uh, that that is a lasting memory, and, and that's why we just had to ask if he'd be willing to share one of the sharks that he was bringing out to the dugout. So we're very thankful that he was willing to do so. 
Yeah, I think what what stands out about our team and um, and our path, and I I don't have any problem saying this. I think it's um, we did it in a way both on the field and off. It'll be very hard to duplicate. Um, not just <clears throat> the comeback wins, the uh, the way we approach the postseason, the winning all the World Series games on the road, but also the off the field aspect and between Gerardo and, and Brian Dozier and Fernando Rodney and everything like it'll be hard to duplicate the way we did it this year. And, and it's great that that is reflected in, in such a cool exhibit at the hall of fame. I think it gives everyone pride and everyone who listens and hopefully everyone who visits you guys um, sees and gets the same type of pride that I get just talking to it, talking about it with you. Yeah. It, it's, it's such a, a cool display, right? Because it's not, you know, it's not just, um, you know, the superstars, it's everyone who made an impact and the whole team should be represented. Sure. Um, you know, the, uh, you, I remember as I remember, um, you know, the baby shark moment, I also remember, you know, when I think back, I'm going to remember this world series as being probably one of the more exciting series in, in baseball history, as you mentioned with every road team winning, you know, leaving all seven games to a sad crowd outside <laughs> exiting the ballpark is just a strange, strange situation. Um, uh, but, um, you know, the things you remember are the performances, the special moments. Mm-hmm. And and for a guy like Howie Kendrick, um, the veteran presence to have those two magical moments um, kind of puts a smile on your face and makes you remember what you love about baseball. You just, you never know who's going to, you know, emerge as the savior, as the mm-hmm. star. And like you're saying, it, it takes, it takes so much more than talent. Right. It takes um, everything falling into place, the right people at the right time, the right uh, clubhouse atmosphere mm-hmm. and the, and the right players. So, um, you know, everything came together for, for this team and, and you guys should all be so proud of what they did. Uh, it, it, just such a great group to watch and, and to watch kind of grow up and thrive together. Now, I know, um, one of your other roles in, at the hall of fame, um, is your role in the hall of fame voting process. Um, and you're, we see you on stage at the winter meetings uh, making your announcements. We, we see you as a part of the announcements in January. Um, so could you give listeners a little bit of your insight and your role into the, um, into the hall of fame process? And yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I, I kind of see, see myself, you know, as kind of the chief organizer when it comes to the, the voting processes, we, we have two main processes. And I guess the first I'll touch on is probably the one that most people are familiar with. Um, and that's run through the Baseball Writers Association of America. Uh, and um, along with Jack O'Connell, their secretary treasurer, um, we kind of put that process in place. Um, you know, Jack uh, Jack um, and his team screen and put the ballot together. Um, and then it's up to us to kind of get the registry process going. So we vet every writer make sure that that writer is eligible, um, has the 10 years of, um, of, uh, of being a part of the Baseball Writers Association. Once they are, they're eligible to vote. Um, and we work to make sure that they get their ballot, it goes to the right place, um, and that their ballot gets returned. Um, so there's a lot of legwork that gets involved. But again, the Hall of Fame itself is not involved in electing anyone that is deferred in this case to the baseball writers and um, the trust has been in in their hands for the entirety of this process being in place. Um, And that goes back, you know, to the 1930s. So um, it's a wonderful process. We, we actually, a lot of people don't realize, but we don't tabulate 
the ballots. They're still paper ballots, and they get sent to um, Ernst and Young, uh, which is uh, you know obviously um, uh, a trusted uh, a trusted uh, organization. They hold all the ballots, and then it's not until the day of the actual um, announcement of the results that we open those ballots. Um, and, and it's a, a three-person team, someone from the baseball writers, someone from the Hall of Fame, and someone from Ernst & Young to validate the results. So um, it's a process uh, that we we feel um, very strongly about. Uh, we think uh, we think we have a great process in place when it comes to the baseball writers and putting our trust in their hands. Um, and then once once the uh, the results are in, it's a quick turnaround to getting kind of putting the PR hat on and getting the event ready, making sure the new electees are ready to uh, do conference calls and um, in January come to New York City um, and uh, and make sure they get where they need to go. So um, it's really special, you know. In my role, I, I get to be in the room when these. Uh, when these guys get the call that they're going in and to hear that emotion, even just through the phone, um, you know, for example, this year um, with Ted Simmons, just not even believing that he was getting these results. And um, uh, it, it was just, it's beautiful. Every, every time it's a special um, experience and uh, you know, the, the process is pretty similar in um, December, as you mentioned, there's kind of a secondary process called um, the Veterans Committee, um, and that's taken a few different shapes over the years. Um, and we look at it now as different eras. Mm-hmm. So one or two era committees meet every December. Um, that's the way that non-players can get elected. So they look at a ballot of ten candidates for each era, um, and those can be not only players who weren't elected by the baseball writers, giving them a second chance and a different perspective from perhaps Hall of Famers and uh, longtime media members um, and longtime executives, but also for umpires, executives, and managers to be evaluated as well. Um, and so, again, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous process where some of the greatest baseball minds enter a room and um, have to come to consensus. I don't know if I mentioned it's 75% that needs to, um, uh, you know, tick the tick the name on the ballot, whether it's the baseball ballot, the baseball writers ballot, or the veterans committee. So, um, it, it's a tough, tough task to get in. It's the hardest sports hall of fame to enter, and it's really hard <laughs> in our society to get seventy five percent of people to agree on much of anything. So, um, you know, those who get in are are certainly deserving. That's great. So. Um... We, I've seen on your social accounts, on, on the Baseball Hall of Fame social accounts, um, some resources that you guys have offered, um, educational resources, uh, as we go through our current uh, national health emergency. Can you give us a, a bit of a rundown of what you guys are offering and, and what listeners can kind of use with their students or use with their kids to uh, kind of break up the monotony of, of kind of what we're going through right now? Yeah, we're, we're um, obviously like everyone else dealing with uh, – brand new, uh, situations. And we're trying our hardest to, to try to do something that can be, um, you know, enjoyed by baseball fans as well as, uh, parents and educators. And obviously learning that a lot of parents are now becoming educators. So, um, what we've done is kind of 
uh, uh, we've kind of put together a new uh, resource that we're calling Safe at Home. Um, so if you go to our website, baseballhall.org, and click on the link to Safe at Home, you're going to find all of our virtual resources that are going to allow you to connect to the museum digitally. So that starts with, you know, our digital collection. And um, and that's really like our, our physical, our archive of our physical objects, um, whether they're in the library or in our collection of more than 40,000 three-dimensional artifacts. Um, you can get lost in that rabbit hole, searching your favorite player, your f- favorite team, or your favorite moment, mm-hmm. and see what the Hall of Fame has and different artifacts that tell those stories. Um, we have online exhibits that people can peruse and interact with us in that way. Of a great YouTube channel with, um, uh, you know, Hall of Fame induction speeches, um, different tips from the pros, all sorts of uh, things for different age groups. But probably what we're seeing the most feedback on is our educational curriculum. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we've offered for years. Um, we have a great curriculum where we teach 16 different subjects through the lens of baseball, and it's all free on our website. Um, and now it's just been a wonderful time to be able to share that curriculum especially with the parents who are trying to become educators um, and whether it's, you know, learning numbers and bat- through batting average um, and math or uh, civil rights through social studies um, and Jackie Robinson, there's just so many ways that baseball has touched upon uh, our society and can be worked into these subjects. Um, and uh, these are all education initiatives that are um, you know, built into uh, core curriculums around the country. So um, it all fits in, it's all vetted, and um, it's wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, activity for parents um, and educators alike. So great feedback there, and it's been wonderful to be able to positively impact people's lives during this difficult time. So that, that's what we're trying to do, um, trying to do what we can to keep people uh, enjoying the game and connected with baseball, even while there's no baseball being played. Right. And we all miss baseball right now. So I guess if you can connect your, your schoolwork to baseball in any way, um, I think that's, that's a positive and that that'll have an impact on, on the students and on the kids uh, and hopefully on the teachers too. Um, so I, I got to ask you a couple of your favorites uh, as we like to do on these shows. Um, usually it's about stadiums or, or press dining or favorite restaurants on the road when we talk to different people. But um, I think it's a very simple one for you. What's your, your favorite exhibit at the hall of fame? If, if you have to pick one. You know, I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this a lot. And um, there's so many great exhibits, three floors of exhibit spaces. We have the plaque gallery. It's really hard to pick just one. but maybe, And maybe it's just this conversation, but but I think I have to go with Autumn Glory. It's, it's our exhibit about the World Series. Um, there's so many wow factors in that exhibit, and it starts with, um, it starts with the World Series rings. We have every World Series ring um, represented. Um, in a case. And it's just, it's amazing to see not only your club represented and moments that you remember, but also the development of that kind of bling and how over time uh, it's grown from no stones to a couple stones to what we have now, which is, um, uh, you know, very different from what um, some of our older hall of famers remember from their championships. But uh, that, that's a really cool piece. And it's just, the moments of the game that we collectively remember are those moments on the the big stage. And um, when you get to walk up to a display that has the glove that Willie Mays used when he made the catch in the 1954 world series, um, when you, when you see the glove that um, 
Yogi Berra used to catch Don Larson's perfect game. Um, you know, when you see the ball from game seven of the 91 World Series where Jack Morris pitched a 10-inning complete game, uh, these are the the moments in baseball that even if we weren't alive for it, we remember them, we know about them, and we kind of have this shared history. So for me, that that's why I think Autumn Glory is um, kind of the must-see uh, exhibit for uh, for baseball fans coming to Cooperstown. It works for me. We have a presence there now, so I'm, I'm all I'm all right with that recommendation. <laughs> um, and then finally, one of the things I've been doing uh, this season on the podcast is is talking about books. And we um, it's a, it was kind of inspired by our closer Sean Doolittle, who's inspired a lot of Nationals fans and a lot of baseball fans in general to to get out and read a little bit more and um, and visit their independent bookstores and. Um, so I thought it'd be cool to kind of incorporate that into this season's of podcast because I think a lot of people are trying to, you know, fill their voids and what's better than baseball books. So uh, I have my two, but I'll let you as the guest go first if you have a couple that you really want to pass along. Yeah, how how kind of you. I, I'm uh, pleased to share. You know, kind of for me, it's more more an author and uh, and just going through this exercise of thinking about it. You know, I'm thinking I got to reread these books, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I was really impressed uh, when I came across uh, Nicholas Davidoff's books. Um, he wrote an amazing account of uh, of a, a former, actually a former uh, Washington Senators player, Mo Berg, played three years with the Senators. Um, a lot of people don't know about Mo Berg, but he had an amazing life. The book is called "The Catcher Was a Spy," mm-hmm. and uh, and it just it talks about this this guy who you'd never think of as a you know a baseball player of the era, but um, he was a, he was really an educated guy, and he um, uh, he didn't really necessarily fit in with the rough and tumble baseball crowd. He would bring books and study books and and read newspapers in the clubhouse. Um, I, I think it was Casey Stengel who said about him, uh, he can speak eight languages, but he can't hit in any of them. So he. <laughs> Definitely a third string kind of catcher, but but made a career out of it. Um, but what made him special is uh, he actually, because of his language skills, got brought on a trip to Japan with Babe Ruth, Gehrig, and all the All-Stars in the 1930s. He, he left the game and went up to the top of a building in Tokyo and took some early video footage that, rumor has it, was used um, by the U.S. military uh, when they were doing their campaigns in World War II. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the title of the book is the catcher was a spy because Mo Berg ended up going on to, uh, become a member of the OSS, which is the predecessor of the CIA. He actually got sent to Germany to, as a spy and, uh, was sent to follow one of their chief scientists working on, uh, the nuclear bomb in Germany. You know, he was on, on assignment to basically kill this guy if he thought he was close to, um, uh, close to giving German Germany the bomb, and uh, it's just an amazing story um, of a ball player turned uh, spy, and uh, just an amazing life in baseball that probably more people should know about. Um, and the author does a great job, Nicholas Davidoff. I've I've read. If you're into memoirs, um, his book, The Crowd Sounds Happy, is kind of his own. Uh, personal um, coming of age tale, and it's all centered around uh, baseball 
and um, how much he loved the game and how much the game was kind of a crush that helped him grow up in a family uh, with mental illness. So uh, great author. Absolutely love both of those books. And I think any baseball fan would too. So mine are kind of in line with what we talked about on this episode. And since we so talked so much about the World Series today, and I haven't done it yet, so I feel like I, I, it's only right to give a shout out to Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post, who wrote Buzzsaw. And I'm not sure if you've read it yet, but it's the story of the 2019 season and the World Series. He did a great job documenting it, uh, putting it into a book. And I'm, I'm, I think as an, I think Nats fans have really enjoyed it so far. I'm sure if anyone's listening or the Nats fans that are listening now probably have already read it. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to drive any more sales for Jesse on this one, but I had to give him, give him the credit he deserves. It's, it's a really good book and really good, do- um, good job of documenting our season. That's awesome. Um, and my other one, and we're on the theme of Washington Post writers, um, goes back a little bit, a couple of years, um, Barry Sferlugo wrote a book called The Grind, uh, Inside Baseball's Endless Season. And it, it, it's set in the 2014 season. He was embedded with us here and there throughout the year. Uh, and he writes really extensive stories on different people involved in the game. Um, he did a, a chapter on the veteran, uh, one on the wife, the scout, the starter, the reliever, uh, the glue, where he talked about the clubhouse guys, um, the general manager. So it's it's a really it's a relatively quick, enjoyable read um, about kind of the, the, the title says it says it all. The grind inside baseball's endless season. So um, those are two that that. Um, I'm hoping Nats fans, if they haven't read yet, we'll check out. And um, That's awesome. Hey, and now I'm thinking, you know, we're hopeful uh, once the season does get rolling um, that the uh, the 2019 World Series trophy might end up in Cooperstown for a special weekend at some point. And maybe we can get Jesse up here to talk about his book in the season too. So That, that thing is well-traveled. Um, yeah. it's, it, it, it was put to work a lot this offseason for, for obvious reasons, but I think the Hall of Fame was a good spot for it to visit. For sure, we got we got to get it started up again soon. We're hopeful. We're hopeful that we'll, we'll be able to start scheduling that out again, and, um, and and hopeful that all the listeners will be able to to come out and, and see the display that we have um, uh, in Cooperstown celebrating the Nationals and all the all the history of the Senators and the Nationals that's on display. Um, you know, it's a it's a great place for any baseball fan, and, and no better time um, for a Nationals fan to come visit us. So, hopefully soon, our, our doors will be open, and nice. and we'll be ready to welcome everyone back to Cooperstown. Nice. I think we're all excited for that. Well, John, thank you for joining the podcast today. Uh, appreciate your time, and uh, we will talk soon. A- absolute pleasure, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me and and stay safe and well. Thanks to John for hopping on the podcast today. Uh, If you haven't visited the Hall of Fame or like me, it's been a while. uh, Be sure to put it on your baseball to-do list. Uh, It's an incredible facility and um, it's one of the best out there. Reminder, be sure to check out From the Booth with Charlie and Dave. uh, And don't forget to send in your 2019 postseason memories as we put together the From the Stands podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Brostowitz or at Nationals. So feel free to get in contact with me on Twitter. Uh, We love hearing from the fans. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on the Curly W Live from the Field podcast.